Good evening, and thank you very much for coming out tonight. We're going to look at Galatians chapter 2, and the first uh, 10 verses. Galatians chapter 2, and verse 1. Paul writes, Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in, in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of, a, of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the, to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Amen. And we trust that God will bless his word to us tonight. In Galatians uh, chapter 2, Paul continues this personal section of the book of Galatians which he started in chapter 1. Broadly speaking, we can divide Galatians into three parts. Chapters 1 and 2 are personal. Chapters 3 and 4 are doctrinal. And chapters 5 and 6 are practical. And in this autobiographical part, this personal part in chapters 1 and 2, Paul is, is sort of writing an autobiography, I suppose, or part of it, and in it he is defending the gospel, and the gospel is the key word in these opening chapters. It's mentioned 11 times in chapters 1 and 2, and only twice in the rest of the epistle. So the gospel is the key word, and it is what Paul is defending. There were attempts made by some to distort the gospel. 
And people were turning to this different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, uh, as Paul says in verse 7 of chapter 1. And so Paul is stressing strongly and passionately in these opening uh, two chapters that the gospel, the gospel of salvation by uh, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that this gospel originates from God. It originates from God. And in verses 11 and 12 of, of, of chapter 1, Paul speaks of how the gospel that he preached was not man's gospel, but he had received it by revelation. Paul hadn't dreamt this up. Paul hadn't invented the gospel. It was God who gave the gospel. The gospel originated from God, and therefore we cannot tamper with the gospel. We cannot dilute the gospel. We cannot add to the gospel because it is God's and it originates with him. And so Paul defends this passionately and he goes on to recount his own conversion and then his subsequent journeys, first to Arabia and three years after his conversion, he went to Jerusalem for 15 days. Some have suggested that this three years in Arabia um, was sort of to compensate for the three years that the, the disciples had with the Lord Jesus. And this was Paul being prepared as an apostle for his ministry. And as we come to chapter 2, which we've read from tonight... Paul recounts another journey. And I thought just before we look into it in more detail, just to make some observations, just to sort of help us understand what's all happening here. And uh, hopefully we can um, uh, do that on, on the PowerPoint here. First of all, who, who is Paul, who, who is involved here? Paul says in verse 1, that I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So there was three of them who together went to Jerusalem. Paul, the apostle, and he went with Barnabas, who was a Jew. A son of encouragement is the meaning of his name. And we may, you may remember from Acts chapter 9, it was Barnabas who... Um, drew alongside Paul when, when everyone else was afraid of him and the Christians and, Paul, and Barnabas came and it was Barnabas that went with Paul on his first missionary journey and they also brought Titus and this is interesting and notice what it says in verse 3 about Titus he was a Greek so he was a Gentile and he was not circumcised and this was this is important and uh, we'll think about that so Titus he was a product of Paul's work of taking the gospel to the Gentiles he was a, a, a real um, object lesson or he was a real example of 
taking what taking the gospel to the Gentiles meant. Um, so the three of them they go, and where do they go? They go to Jerusalem. Again, this is important. Jerusalem is where Christianity began, and it it is also the heartland of Judaism. And it's interesting that Paul is bringing Titus with him, this uncircumcised Gentile. And I think maybe if we don't think so much about it, it maybe is lost on us. But this was not without purpose. And it would not have been without controversy. If I can use an example from modern day, maybe this is a bit frivolous. Apologies if it is, if it is. But if I was a, a die-hard Don's supporter, you know, Aberdeen supporter, and I invited my friend from Glasgow to come with me to Pitodry to watch a home match, and we went to the most fanatic section in the home crowd. And I took my friend from Glasgow with me, Rangers supporter, and he turned up in this Rangers top, you know, and he sat with me in this diehard section in Pitodry uh, as Aberdeen played um, Rangers, you know, rival teams. Extremely unlikely that my friend wouldn't get a lot of abuse, let alone, you know, leaving the match at the end without his you know still wearing his ranger's top and and so on maybe a frivolous example but this is the kind of the cultural clash that there would have been as paul took an uncircumcised gentile right into jerusalem into the heartland of judaism so when did this happen peter uh, Paul says there, after 14 years, I went again up to Jerusalem. I thought it would be helpful just to have a quick timeline. We'll not go through this in in great detail, but just to give us an indication. I like to see where are we now in in all this. Um, So Saul of Tarsus would have been converted round about year 34 or or so. And... Three years after, he makes his first visit to Jerusalem. That's what he said in chapter 1. We we do know that Paul makes another visit to Jerusalem, which we read of in Acts chapter 11, at the end of the chapter. Now, some think that the visit described here in Galatians chapter 2 is this visit that is described in Acts chapter 11. In fact, if you have got an ESV study Bible, that's where I first read. And I, I thought, okay, that's what it is. Now, that's how it did my timeline initially. Then I read um, Tim Keller's commentary. He agreed with that. Um, but as I read others, the consensus seems to be, no, that's not the visit to Jerusalem that's described in Galatians chapter 2. Paul then goes on his first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14, with Barnabas. And then he makes his third visit to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. You know that 
Um, you are aware of Acts 15 being a watershed chapter, a watershed moment in the history of the early church, and where there was a big conference where Paul and Barnabas were at, as were James and Peter and John, and they were debating how a Gentile uh, could be saved and whether circumcision was necessary. Now, when you, I'm not going into great detail of why I think Galatians 2 is, corresponds with Acts 15 and not Acts 11, but let me just give you four very high-level reasons. The circumstances are very similar. The subject of discussion is very similar. The chief persons concerned are very similar. And the agreement arrived at in the end is also very similar. We'll come to that later. So, all to say that I believe, as do many, that this trip to Jerusalem that Paul speaks of here in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, corresponds with Acts 15. Which is about... 14 years after his first trip, give or take. It doesn't have to be exactly 14 years. When Paul says 14 years, it could well be 13 years and two months or so. And then, shortly after that, Paul writes Galatians. Galatians, I think, is probably Paul's first letter. So, this is the when. And to whom did they go and see. They went to see James and Cephas and John. Now Cephas is another name for Peter. So this is Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, and John, apostles um, in Jerusalem. Why did he go? Well, he went because A, he had had a, a revelation from God and also uh, and, and this is what what this is all about is that there were false brothers, says verse 4, who had sneaked in secretly and they were spying out the freedom that the gospel brought and they were looking to bring them back into bondage. Key word, the gospel, mentioned four times in this section. Key verse, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. And that is what this passage is about, I would say, suggest to you today, is that this passage is about preserving the truth of the gospel. Or, I called it at the start on the first slide, what to do when the gospel is at stake. And so we see... Paul's desire to preserve the gospel, but also to maintain unity and also to show compassion. And so that's what we're going to think about uh, in in our um, message tonight. Preserving the truth of the gospel, maintaining unity in the gospel and showing compassion. So, that's just some observations. Um, and uh, it's important just to 
before we look to interpret and see what a passage means that we observe and, 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 and just to um, understand what's happening here. So what is the background to Paul's journey to Jerusalem that he is describing here? Well, we saw in verse 4 that false brothers had, had come in and they were spying out the freedom and they were looking to bring them back into slavery, Paul says. And I like the way that J.B. Phillips translates it in his, um, in his translation of this. He said, some pseudo-Christians wormed their way into our meeting to spy on the liberty we enjoy in Jesus Christ. And then attempted to tie us up with rules and regulations. These pseudo-Christians had wormed their way into this assembly here and they were spying out the freedom and they were looking to tie them up with rules and regulations. False brothers, these were not genuine Christians. They were sly troublemakers. And they wanted to take away the freedom that the gospel brought. And freedom in Christ is perhaps the key theme that runs right through the book of Galatians. And perhaps the key verse in the whole of Galatians is chapter 5 and verse 1. Galatians 5 verse 1 says this. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. This freedom that the gospel brings needs to be enjoyed and it needs to be protected. Now, what do we mean? What does Paul mean when he speaks about freedom? It's not freedom to do whatever we like. Freedom to please ourselves. That is not the kind of freedom that the gospel brings. But it is freedom from judgment. It is freedom from the guilt of sin. The gospel is about complete forgiveness and complete acceptance in Christ. And when we believe in this, and when, when we live in the good of the gospel, it gives us freedom, freedom from guilt, and freedom from worrying if we have done enough to please God. Freedom from worrying about being accepted and being loved Because we are accepted in Christ. We are no longer under bondage. Paul says in Galatians in the next chapter. We are no longer under bondage because Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse himself. Galatians 3.13 But it's also a freedom from cultural and societal barriers. You know, the gospel unites people from all backgrounds, from all walks of life. And the gospel breaks down cultural and societal barriers. And in chapter 3, Paul also says this. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, 
There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. So the gospel gives freedom from these cultural and societal barriers. Christianity is not about adopting a set of traditions. It's not about adopting a culture, even if it is the, the, the law of Moses. It's about being accepted in Christ and being adopted into his family. In chapter 4 and verse 5, Paul says, God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So it's not about us adopting a set of traditions. It's about God adopting us into his family and breaking down all barriers. But these pseudo-Christians, these false brothers, they were robbing the believers of this freedom. They wanted to tie them up with rules and regulations. And so, this is what they said. If we look at um, Acts 15, which is a corresponding uh, chapter to this. And um, and there Paul said, or sorry, Luke, Dr. Luke says in Acts 15 and verse 1, Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what they were saying. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And in verse 5, it says this, Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So this is what these false brothers, these pseudo-Christians were doing. They were bringing in laws from the law of Moses and saying this is necessary for someone to be saved. And that's the background. And that's why Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem and they take an uncircumcised Gentile with them. And what does Paul do as he comes to Jerusalem. It says in verse 2 of Galatians 2, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. And I like the way that Paul handled this. He didn't go there and rile at them and hurl abuse at them. He goes there and he carefully and logically gives a full explanation of the gospel that he was preaching and the impact that it had had among the Gentiles. And so in Acts chapter 15 again in verse 12, we read this after Paul and Barnabas had been speaking. All the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what God had done through them among the Gentiles. And so Paul, he goes to Jerusalem with Barnabas and he sets out the gospel. And Paul knew what 
was at stake here. And Paul, it says in verse 2, he feared that he, all his work would be wasted, that he had run in vain. Now, I don't think this means that Paul was unsure about the gospel and he, he, he was going to Jerusalem to, to get the apostles to, to verify it. Paul was certain about the gospel that he was preaching. But if the other apostles, if James and John and Peter accepted what these false brothers were bringing in and tampered with the gospel that Paul was preaching, the danger was that the church would be um, damaged that the converts that had heard about the grace of the gospel, that they would fall away and accept this different gospel that they, they were trying to, this faith plus works gospel. And in that sense, Paul was concerned that he had labored in vain. And so Paul goes to Jerusalem and he speaks to them and he, he deals with the issue head on because he knows that the gospel itself is at stake. He deals with the issue. He didn't, he didn't try, he didn't avoid it. But with clear thinking and openness, he approached these men. But he was uncompromising. Again, J.B. Phillips, he translates verse 5 like this. We did not give those men an inch. For the truth of the gospel for you and all the Gentiles was at stake. We did not give these men an inch. They didn't even open the door a tiny little bit. They didn't give them an inch. Paul was uncompromising because the gospel was at stake. For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore. Stand firm. And here, Paul was standing firm. He was uncompromising. And what was the outcome of all this? Verse 6 says... Those who seemed influential added nothing to me. James and Peter and John, they did not add anything to the gospel that Paul had set out. They accepted what Paul was preaching. And this is what Peter says in Acts 15, verse 11. Cephas, as he's called in Galatians 2. We believe that we, Jews, will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they, the Gentiles, will. So Peter agreed. James agreed. John agreed with Paul. They added nothing to what Paul had set out uh, to them. 
think three times Paul uses this phrase that those who seemed influential added nothing to me. He's referring to Peter and and James and John. Now, I think there might be a hint of sarcasm here, but I don't think the sarcasm was directed at Peter and James and John. The sarcasm here was directed at these false brothers who thought, well, Peter and John and James, they are more important, they are more influential than Paul. Because, I mean, they were with the Lord Jesus. And so I don't think there's sarcasm here which is directed at the the fellow apostles. Paul was very... He was very forthright as he dealt with this conflict. But he was also amicable. He was polite. And the outcome of all this was that these three apostles added nothing to the gospel and then they extended the right hand of fellowship. Verse 9. So the gospel was preserved. The truth of the gospel was preserved. And also the unity in the church was maintained. And this is, I mean, we cannot overestimate the importance of this meeting in Jerusalem and the outcome. And it's summarized by this lovely image of the, the right hand of fellowship being, uh, uh, being um, stretched out. I don't think it was a case of, you know, looking down, hands in the pocket, okay, I suppose, and the kind of a soft kind of handshake. I think it was a firm, proper um, handshake that they, they gave each other. Something we've missed in these last couple of years, that, you know, important it is. But they extended the right hand of fellowship. Now, if you think about it, those who were present in this meeting wrote 21 of the 27 books in the New Testament. 22, if you think the Barnabas wrote Hebrews, which many think he did. You know, Paul, James, Peter... John, they wrote 21 of the 27 books in the New Testament. Barnabas, Hebrews, maybe 22. If there had been a division amongst these these men, these apostles, the consequence would have been catastrophic. Now, that's not an over... That's not an exaggeration it would have completely stopped the work of the gospel in the first century and the writing and the compilation of the New Testament. I know this is hypothetical, but this, that would have been the outcome. So we are very glad that the right hand of fellowship was extended Paul and Barnabas, because unity 
is so important within the church. Not at the expense of truth. It's very instructive to see, I think, in this conflict that arose, that truth was established first, and then unity could be maintained. The two parties, they didn't just sort of ignore the issues at hand and agree that, you know, we all love Jesus. Let's just put this aside and, you know, let's just get on. No, they established the truth and they preserved the truth. And then unity followed as a result. C.S. Lewis said this, Seek unity, and you will find neither unity or truth. Seek the light of truth, and you will find unity and truth. I think that's very helpful, and I think this is what we see played out in Galatians. But it's not that the truth was preserved with arrogance and bashfulness. There were clear heads. There was a sensible debate. As far as I can see, there was transparency and there was amicability between the parties. There was no provocation. There was no mud-flinging. And it probably helped, to be honest, that they didn't have telephones and emails and WhatsApp and Twitter and Snapchat, to be fair. I often think, you know, imagine if they had. Now, if they were communicating, they had to go and get paper from somewhere and get a quill. Uh, and, you know, that's not, oh, I just got W.H. Smith. You know, it, it, that, was, that was a job to get. And then you had to get that letter sent. And if you're holding a conference, you couldn't just say, well, let's meet on Zoom tonight at 7 o'clock. They had to walk to Jerusalem. And as they were walking to Jerusalem, they would have talked about the issue. They would be reflecting on things. And as they were reflecting and discussing on the way, and maybe rewriting the letter before sending it somehow, however you sent it in those days, there was time, there was deliberation. And I... I, you, we can only imagine if, 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 if they were dealing with this with, um, through social media. Because it's so easy just to write stuff about people or to someone. And I, I, was, I heard on Thursday about a, a Christian organization that did a survey uh, amongst their employees. It wasn't Echoes International. It was a Christian organization surveyed their employees and they asked them what was the main cause of anger or irritation at work. What do you think? Emails. Emails. That was the main cause. Because people can fling an email and they can say something. They maybe weren't nasty, but the way that it's written, because they were short on time and you pick it up and you read it quickly, so that's very offensive. And so on. So... Um, I, I think this is actually quite helpful 
some helpful lessons here. This is not that's not the main issue, but how we deal with conflict. I think we have some lessons here in this passage. You know, they were not arrogant, they preserved the truth, but it was set the the truth was debated and they set out the gospel. It was clear, there was transparency, there was openness, there was amicability, there was no arrogance. He, um, Proverbs says this, chapter 10, verse 20 of Proverbs. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. And whoever restrains his lips or his thumbs, you know, on the phone, is prudent. And we should restrain our thumbs on our phones or our words that we speak. Because when words are many, transgression is not lacking. So this passage is about the truth of the gospel. I think it's a wonderful lesson here about conflict management and how we deal with other people when there is a disagreement. I think this is a very important subject, by the way, today. Um, there's a lot of division um, amongst Christians today and in churches as well that have come about because of COVID regulations. And we all have opinions and I have opinions. I might have some strong opinions, as my family would tell you. And, um, but we need to be careful how we express our opinions. Now, how we deal with restrictions is not a cardinal truth like the gospel. And it's not a case of, I will not give an inch when it comes to these things, because that is, and it's important that we realize that. You know, when you go to A&E, you'll see a triage nurse first, and if you have a paper cut, she'll say, you're wasting NHS resources, go home. If you have chest pain and you're out of breath, they'll get a doctor to you immediately, because they'll say, there's this triage, this is not important, this is quite important, this is really important. And when it comes to the scriptures, we need to do some um, spiritual triage and say, okay, is this a gospel truth? If it is, I'm not going to give an inch. Somebody's saying, you know, Christ was not really God, was he? Well, absolutely he was. I'm not going to give you an inch. Somebody says, well, you need to be baptized to really be saved. No. That's a gospel truth. I'm not going to give you an inch. Somebody says, we're going to change the hymn book. We need a new one. That's not a gospel truth. We might want to give an inch. So we need to be careful. And it's same when it comes to, you know, what do we do as things open up? 
with restrictions. Well, we need to be careful how we deal with it and we need to be uh, amicable. We need to be transparent. We need to listen. And we need to maintain unity because unity is so important and we see that here. Finally, compassion. Verse 10. So they extended the right hand of fellowship. And then they said this. Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing that we were eager to do. Now Paul listened here. And he listened to their request. And he... Paul was eager to do this. And this is an important aspect of the gospel, helping the poor. First of all, within the household of faith. And there had been, by this time, and Paul was part of it, there had been uh, a collection because there was a famine in Jerusalem and the Jewish believers were struggling and there was had been a collection and there had been support for the believers in Jerusalem. And this marked the early church and this has marked Christianity ever since. Helping the downtrodden in society And I wonder how important it is to us. You know, orthodoxy is important. I mean, orthodoxy in terms of preserving the truth. But it's possible to, to be orthodox and divisive. That's not biblical. To be orthodox, you know, to preserve truth, but to be divisive about it. It's also possible to be orthodox, and I don't mean in the denominational sense, you know what I mean, but to preserve truth, but to lack empathy. You know, I know the truth, we believe the truth, but we don't have the empathy that was very much part of the early Christian and Christians. And perhaps this... It's one of the dangers of one of the challenges for us today in the 21st century church in the UK. Remembering the poor and how we do that individually and as a church and look for opportunities to help, whether that is in our own neighbourhood, in our own community, or whether that is supporting Christians in Afghanistan or believers in who, who, who are suffering in other countries, Myanmar or elsewhere. So, in summary, and, and I'm borrowing here a little bit from Alzer Begg, and I thought this summarized it well. Alzer Begg spoke 
speaks about clear heads, clasped hands, and constrained hearts. Hearts constrained by the gospel. And I thought that that is a wonderful image of this passage. There is clear heads orthodoxy. We preserve the truth of the gospel. There's clasped hands. There's unity. Unity is maintained. And then there are hearts constrained by the gospel, showing empathy to the people in need. So may God help us to take some lessons from this passage tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. And we thank you for this meeting that we could read off. And we thank you for the outcome that the gospel was not tampered with. It was not diluted. It was not added to. And there was agreement amongst those apostles in those early days. And we thank you that the gospel spread from there and has affected so many uh, around the four corners of the world and it has come to us and we have experienced the freedom that is in Christ. And so we thank you for the gospel. Help us to be passionate about maintaining, preserving the truth of the gospel and to spread the gospel and maintaining unity in the church and to support the poor. So Father, help us and challenge us all tonight, we pray. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.